Welcome to the Josh Blair Ministry Podcast, a podcast all about bringing inspiration and encouragement to your daily walk with Jesus. We pray the message you hear impacts you as you follow Christ. This is week five in our series of Knowing God's Will. Are you excited? Hopefully you've got something out of, uh, out of these, uh, these sermons the last, uh, the last four weeks, and we're ending this week on where it all begins. Today, today's message is knowing God's will for my family. How many of you want to know what God's will is for your family? It was, it was strategic how, how I laid this out, beginning from the beginning of creation, then looking at God's will for His people, God's will for the lost who are not His people, then God's will for the church, and now... The family. It all boils down there. Recognizing that we're empowered by God, we're called by God, we're gifted by God, not just for ourselves, but so that we can serve others. Amen? So that we can love on others, that we can point others to Jesus. And this morning, our main text, looking at what God's will is for our family, is what Paul wrote in, Col- in uh, Colossians chapter 3 recognized as household codes or family codes that Paul writes about. And as he builds this this roadmap for us on what God is wanting to do in our families, he, he lays out from the beginning of Colossians until he speaks to us about, about family connection, everything that we've discussed in the last four weeks of God creating us with purpose and intention, God ministering through us and the people of God, and giving us this groundwork of what Jesus is doing. And how many of you know that in the family, you can't hide who you are at home? Yeah, you can put on a good face here. You can, you can act as godly as you want to act for a couple of hours. You know, but you go home, people know if, if, you, if you're loving Jesus or not. Yeah? I mean, I could stop there. That could be the message. That, the conviction we feel when we go home. And are we really loving our families well? See, the family is the proving ground of life transformation in Jesus, isn't it? It's the proving ground that if we have submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, not only is He our Savior, but He's also our Lord, then the grace of God will affirm that for us, but our family relationships will prove it. So the the love of God will, will settle us in our hearts, but the way we interact with those that we say we love will prove whether we belong to Jesus or not. And so Paul lays it all out here. He says you can't be fake at home. You can't do it. And so he starts with this, this idea giving us a right orientation of, of what it means to follow Jesus. And these family codes that he's going to talk about, you know, it's, already, it's pretty prevalent in society that the family structure is important. Whether you're a, a Christian or a non-Christian, you can see that uh, if a family is, is breaking down and is corroding, then society is also breaking down and corroding. There are, there are national magazines that have articles across the nation that talk about the decline of family, of the family structure, is the barometer of the decline in social structure. So the world already knows it and tries to establish something, but Christianity, Jesus, is the answer of how we actually heal the family. And if the family is healed, then our communities are healed. If the family is healed, our cities will be healed. If the family is healed, our world will be healed. And so everything funnels down to this. And this is what Paul begins to write about. 
And he sets this reorientation for us. How many of you know we have to be reoriented to the will of God and to the ways of God before we can live them out? Because society is going to give us answers, the world's going to give us answers, but we need to know what Jesus says first before we can live out what we're doing. And this is what Paul says in Colossians 1, 11 and 12. And he's going to hit on all the points that we talked about in the last four weeks. He says this, "...being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might." For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This takes us back to week one where Paul is saying, through Jesus you have been empowered to partner with God to fulfill the will of God in your life. And when you fulfill the will of God, you share in the inheritance of God or the inheritance of saints, which is eternal life. And we talked about that from the very beginning, that when God created, He began to he, he invited us to partner with Him. Do you remember that? I've said it for the last four weeks. So if you don't remember that, I have failed at my position. That God is creating, initiating, inviting us to be a part. Paul is saying that in Colossians. You partner with Jesus. You share in His inheritance. Then Paul says in 15 verses, uh, verses 15 through 17, he says, He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. We talk about the sovereignty of God's will. is higher than our will. It is better than our will. So we can submit our wills to His will because what He has planned for us is far better than what we could plan for ourselves. And He's reminding us of this by pointing to Jesus. That Jesus has created all things and is in all things and that when we submit our hearts to Him, He has rule over all things. He has dominion over all things. And recognize that wording there. Dominion, ruler, authority, and reign. Does that remind you of anything? From a couple of weeks ago where we talked about in Genesis 1, 26-28 where God says He created us to have dominion and authority and rule and reign over all of creation. All of that authority and dominion was created and established by Jesus first from the dawn of time. And so Jesus gives us rule and reign and authority. Then we fell, we gave it away. Right? We gave it away to the enemy. Jesus comes back, defeats the enemy, kicks him in the face, tears down walls, rips up lies, and says, I give it back to you. I give you back now a place of authority, a place of dominion, a place of rule and reign. Paul is reminding us of this to establish what the will of God is in our life. What is he calling us to do? The next thing Paul talks about is in verses 25 and 29. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship that word stewardship, does that sound familiar? We've been talking a lot about that. The stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. See, God has given us stewardship, given us gifts and talents, not for ourselves, but for others. That we give it to others. God has called us to steward relationships well. And in verse 29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all of whose energy? His energy, God's energy, that He powerfully works within me. So Paul is mentioning a couple things here. First, stewardship and a call to ministry, which we've talked about the last few weeks, that we've been called to minister, called to steward. And we highlighted this last week 
that we're called to minister and steward in all the areas of our lives. And we're called to work, to struggle, and toil, not in our strength, but in His strength, by the grace of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this sounds a lot like the reminder of what, of what God said in Genesis 2, 15, right? That we are called to cultivate, and toil, tear up the ground, and bring life where there is no life. Paul is saying in, to the people in Colossians, I toil, I cultivate, I tear up broken ground so that there will be life where there is no life. And this is what he's demonstrating to us. This is what ministry is. We have been called to steward and to minister, to tear up the hard ground of people's hearts and lives and plant the seed of Jesus in them. And Paul is saying this to them as well. It all relates back to the things that we've been discussing. Finally, in, in chapter 2, 1 and 2, he says this, For I know, for I want you to know, how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul is saying, you have been blessed to be a blessing. Your call is to be in unity and love together, being knit together. We talk about being of one body. Yes, we belong to each other. We serve one another. I love that imagery he uses of being knit together. It reminds me of what, of what the psalmist David wrote when he said that God, before I was born, knit me together in my mother's womb. Because this is the idea of being brought together as one body. God, as he knits our bodies together, also knits us together in love so that we belong to each other. You're a part of me. I'm a part of you. We've been knit together. We've been sewn together that what God has put together... No one should separate. We talk a lot about that in marriages, but we don't really talk about that in church settings. But we are of one body, of one mind, of one heart. Jesus' will was that we would be one, that we would be unified together. And Paul is reminding of this as well. So what is, what is, what is God's will? We've been talking about what is God's role in His will, what is our role corporately in His will, and what is our role individually in God's will. And the first part is that God's role is to qualify us. God has done everything through Jesus. So in light of this, we are able to accomplish everything that Paul is going to say in chapter 3 because God has qualified us to accomplish it. So everything that Paul is going to write about now, he has set up this imagery you were created with a purpose. You were created with talents and giftings. You belong to one another, love one another, and God has qualified you to this, and He has set the stage for what now He's going to say. That God's will started from the beginning of the world, but it really hits home, literally, at home. If you want to know where God's will is truly established, it happens first in your family. Not across the road ministering, not, on the, not overseas on a mission trip. God's will first hits home in your home. That's where the rubber meets the road. That is the el momento decisivo. Did I even say that right? Yes. Yeah? Is that good? Oh, good. I, that, was, that was the most thing I was stressing about all morning if I was going to say that right. <laughs> That's where it all takes place. That's where it all happens. And so we believe that God is speaking to us specifically about what God is wanting us to do in our families. 
So Paul starts in chapter three. He starts it with a clarifying statement to frame what out, what others uh, what the other portion is going to say next. So in verses one and two, he says this: If then, I love that. If then, if all of these things are true, and you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. I love that imagery. We, we had baptisms last Sunday where we symbolically showed that people were going from death when they went under to being raised with Christ in new life. And we celebrated together. We cheered together. And Paul says, if symbolically that is true, if you have been raised with Christ, then set your mind on the things that are above. And what is above? Heaven. Where is Jesus? heaven. That's where he is seated at the right hand of God. And Paul is saying that everything that you do on earth should be motivated by heaven. Every interaction that you have, every decision, every word, every deed should be motivated by your thoughts about heaven. And we declare that Jesus is Lord over all. We mean that he touches every area of our life, not just the areas we feel comfortable surrendering to him. Not just the areas of being at church on Sunday and Wednesday, you know, and, and, and trying to be good people. But we submit every area, even the bad areas, even the dark areas, even the hard areas, even the areas we don't understand. We submit to the Lordship of Jesus because He is Lord over all. And He calls us out from our comfortable place to seek what He is doing. So that means not only publicly our conduct should reflect the things of heaven... But even in our private times, being able to be really real with ourselves, and even the thoughts that we have and the actions that we think about that no one else thinks about, we still submit to Jesus saying, God, I don't know where that thought came from. I don't know why I thought that. I don't know why I'm struggling in this area. But God, I don't want these things. I want you. I want you, what you have. I want what you can offer, not what I can do in secret that no one else knows about. I want to submit even those things to you because you are Lord and Savior over my entire life. So what, is, what does Paul say then? Is, what is our role in establishing God's will? What is our role corporately? Our role is to take off the old self and put on the new self. That's the exact imagery that, that Paul uses here, the idea of changing clothes. He says, hey, take off that filthy, raggedy jacket and put on this new one that God has given to you. That's, he's being very literal. You have a choice to make. And what is the old self? I'm glad you asked. It's found in, in verses 5 through 10. Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put, on, put them away. Anger, Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. I love this because Paul is, he's not trying to pretend that we used to be good people and we just got saved and become better people. Paul is saying, hey, you used to be like this. Horrible stuff. But now that you've met Jesus, put that stuff away because he's given you a new nature. We, sometimes we walk around as if we've never sinned and we just happened to find Jesus and he made us better. That's not it at all. Whether you've acted out on these things or not, Jesus says if you thought these things in your mind, so you have acted. 
So we have all fallen short of the glory of God. That doesn't disqualify us. That just means we need to put that stuff off and put on new stuff through Jesus. Paul's not trying to dance around these things. He's saying you used to do them. Don't do them anymore because the grace of God has empowered you to stop them. He says, Having, uh, you have put on the new self, verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Who is its creator? Jesus. He said that in, in chapter 1. All things were created through, by, and for Jesus. So Jesus has created for you a new self. Put it on, and in knowledge of Him, it will make you more like Him. This is the desire of what God is wanting to do inside of us. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God's grace is what sustains us. You know when Paul writes about grace, he never uses grace as an excuse for sin. In fact, he, he, he belittles people that say that, great, that grace uh, is to excuse their sin. He never says the, the grace of God is to excuse sin. He says the grace of God is victory over sin. That God's grace to you gives you victory over sin. Isn't that powerful? That doesn't matter what you're wrestling or struggling with this morning. God's grace gives you victory over the things that you wrestle with and struggle with this morning. Amen. So he says, put off that old self. Put on the new self. What does the new self look like? Good question. Thanks for asking that. You guys are on fire today asking the right questions. Because this is what Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 3. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He just said you used to do these things. You used to be impure. You used to have sexual immorality. You used to lie and slander and backbite. Oh, but when you found Jesus, now you are the chosen ones, holy and beloved. Will you look at your neighbor and say, you're holy and beloved? You are holy and beloved. Do you believe that? God has transformed you in a moment to be holy and beloved. This is what he says. Put on these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. What kind of forgiveness are we supposed to give to those who have done us wrong? The same type of forgiveness that Jesus has given to us. And there is no greater forgiveness than that. The way we forgive others will demonstrate how Jesus has forgiven us. And we need to live that way. And he says this, Just, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called as one body. And be thankful. I love that tagline that Paul just throws in there. He just gives you a whole list of things you need to put on, and he says, oh yeah, yeah, be thankful. Why does he say that? Because gratitude drives our attitude. I just made that up, but that sounds really good. It just hit me. Gratitude drives your attitude. It, it, it dictates how you're going to feel about situations and circumstances. Would you agree? You've never been in a bad place with a bad attitude and be, been super thankful. Oh, God, I just, oh, I thank you. Oh, I thank you for Sam and not all the things he's done. I just, I love him. No, you can't do that. It's, and Sam, you've done nothing to me. But I just, I saw you, so I used you as an example. But you can't, you can't do that because gratitude 
I'm going to say it again. Drives your attitude. It tells your mind, your emotions, your heart what to think. So Paul says, hey, on top of all these things, be grateful, and it will drive you in the right direction. Paul is addressing our interaction with each other here. And he's calling us, if you recognize and submit to the Lordship of Jesus, then right living, this type of morality, will be the byproduct when you say Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. He's saying you don't need to force it, but you do need to choose it. You don't need to try to pretend, but you do need to every morning say, I'm going to do this. Not in, who, not in your strength, but in, in God's strength. He has given you His grace, His love, to do it, but choose it. Put it on, live it out. And demonstrate that you are submitting to the love and the Lordship of Jesus. This is going to be the byproduct. This is going to be the evidence that you are truly a believer in Jesus. There's going to be transformation. There just is. Our lives will reflect the heart of Jesus, which is to be unified with the body of Christ and draw people to us. Morality, a moral life, will express, express the grace of God. If you're living immorally, but yet you say you have the grace of God, you are a liar. Because the morality will express the grace of God, because the grace of God gives us victory over these things. And so when you're struggling with something, be very honest with yourself and with God and with others, but believe that victory is still coming. God, I don't need to give in to this because your grace is enough for me. God, I don't need to act this way because your grace is enough for me. God, I don't need to respond this way because your grace is enough for me. It empowers me for victory. The last portion is, what is, what is my role? To minister the gospel, starting where? In the family, at home. Where do we minister the gospel? At home. God has called you to be evangelists and ministers but starting at home. So if we are taking off the old nature, putting on the new nature of Jesus, submitting to one another, loving one another, bearing each other's burdens, walking in forgiveness and compassion, then that should happen at home first. It has to happen at home first. Because that's the only place that you can be the most real. That you don't have to put on a mask. But that's also the hardest place to do it because you have to be real and you don't put on a mask. That's where, that's where it all hits. So if we're saying that we submit to the Lordship of Jesus, meaning that He's in charge, then we will treat our families demonstrating that we've been transformed. And this is what Paul, he approaches the next portion of the verses with this type of mindset. Loving one another, having compassionate hearts. And he says this in verses 18 and 19, which has ironically been the most quoted out-of-context verses to be used to manipulate and to uh, justify dysfunction in our homes because it's been misinterpreted incorrectly. It's not been interpreted correctly. This is what it says, verse 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. And yet, this for centuries has tragically been used to justify the dysfunction in our families because of a distortion of Paul's words. Wifely submission has been taken to mean that women 
are less than men. That they are subservient to men. That they, should, they were created to serve men. And that's a lie. That's not at all what this scripture says. That's not at all what Jesus, what Paul is saying. What Jesus has put on Paul to write. But yet we, have, we see women who are being belittled by their husbands and are requiring them to take demands and march around to their orders as a servant to them and not a partner with them. Somebody's getting ministered to this morning. There's freedom in the house this morning. And yet, husbands, husbandly love has become this condescending care of the woman. Like she's a burden to the man. And his, his role is just to make money. But yet we see husbands all the time. Man, I, make my, I work hard. All she does is spend my money. Yeah? As if our wives are our burdens that we have to bear. That's not what this is saying. We love our wives the way that Christ loves the church, church. And we are not harsh to them. We love them. We support them. We encourage them. But the abuse that's been promoted by these types of translations has caused many believers to disregard the words of Paul as outdated or irrelevant or too misogynistic for our enlightened culture. And we miss what Paul is trying to say here. When we read through the lens of what Paul has written in previous chapters of loving one another, submitting to one another, having compassionate hearts for one another, we can interpret this passage of Scripture correctly. So if we recognize that Jesus is our master, that we've put on a new self, we have been reoriented towards relationships within our home that will demonstrate the love and care of our families that God has called us to. So for example, if, if a wife sees herself as subservient to her husband, she will allow him to dominate her, misuse her, and abuse her. But if she sees herself as Christ's disciple, and co-equal heirs with her husband in Christ, then she knows how to walk out a life of submission without being dominated and abused. Amen. Amen. She can submit herself in the same way that Jesus freely submitted himself to the will of the Father when he came and lived sacrificially for us. Jesus did not leave heaven out of fear and forced submission. He did it out of mutual love and respect for the will of God and for what God was doing in and through the world. And this is the type of submission that Paul is writing about. In fact, the word that he uses here for that uh, wives submit to your husbands, this idea of submittance is, is a volunteer decision. So if you're being forced to submit and by, by being browbeat by this verse, Paul says, hey, if that's the attitude your husband's going to take, then you need to take a little break and step away and say, you need to rethink about what God is calling us to do as a couple. We are equal in Christ. Amen? Amen. We are equal in Christ. When we recognize Christ's lordship, that we are equal. So being made equal in Christ radically transforms how two disciples relate to each other as husband and wife. You're a disciple of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. We can work together. The result is that the wife then is elevated in the home and the end of abuse can take place. This happens when the hus in a husband-wife relationship. It happens in a parent-child relationship. It even happens at 
as employees and employers relating to, together, recognizing that we are of equal value in Christ. So Paul makes this, makes sure that our interactions towards one another as husband and wife are fitting in the Lord. The issue at stake here isn't, the, isn't a gender war, and our culture is so thick in the middle of a gender war right now. But the issue isn't about a gender war, it's about being disciples of Jesus. He says, serve each other as fitting to the Lord, not as fitting to, this, uh, to, to maleness or to femaleness. He's saying the orientation should be towards the Lord. How you love each other should be in reverence to the Lord. How you serve each other should be in reverence to the Lord. It's not about a power struggle. It's about how well are you serving Jesus in your relationship. How well are you demonstrating the love of Christ in your relationship? Serve as unto the Lord one another. It isn't a gender issue. So secular understandings of submission, whether they're coming from feminist views or uh, patriarchal views or complementarian views, they have to be set aside and replaced with the views of how Christ had submitted to the Father. We don't try to define our relationship with each other through secular standards of living because those are always going to have a power struggle. But our power struggle is how am I submitting more of myself to Jesus and allowing Him and His love to move through me towards others. So this condescending view of a man trying to, because I provide for my wife, she should do what I say, has to be kicked out and replaced with how Christ loved and sacrificed Himself for the care and the fulfillment of God's will in the church. That's what the husband is called to do, to love like Jesus loves, not as a king ruling with an iron fist, but as an open life of sacrificial love, saying, how can I serve you better? How can I love you better? This is what God calls us to do. Our love and our submission to one another is summed up in the verses that we read in, chapter, in verses 12 through 14. But if our marriages and our relationships and our family look more like what Paul said of the things that we should be putting off in verses 5 through 9, then we have an issue. If we're lying to each other, belittling each other, talking bad about each other, being angry towards one another, if we're not being faithful to one another, then we are not demonstrating a transformation, a transformation of our lives in Jesus. We've not been transformed by Jesus. Paul goes on to say, to talk about children and parents. And he says this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And all the parents said, Amen. Thank you, Jesus. But then he goes on to say, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So if Jesus is Lord over all, then He has reoriented our relationships, including the parent-child relationship. How we love and care for our children, how children, we respond to our parents. See, society has set up its own values and expectations of a parent-child relationship, and those things and those pressures are never more real than they are today through social media, right? It's so easy to put your well-behaved kid on social media and say, man, I'm killing it. Look at this kid. Knows his alphabet. Knows his colors. I'm in that, I'm in that phase right now because my son is almost two. So that's all, I, I, that's all I know how to parent. I don't know how to, you know. There's no bigger issue right now than that and potty training, okay? So, but I can, I, can, I can put only the best stuff online 
And now that puts pressure on you. Now, my kid doesn't know their colors. My kid's not potty trained. My kid doesn't know how to count to 100 in Spanish. Okay? And then we're trying to force our kids into these molds that they were never for, supposed to be forced in. Or sometimes because we're broken people and now we're raising broken people, we try to put on them expectations and our own ambitions that we failed out in our life. We're like, hey man, I, I didn't do this well, but I, would, I never you know, became pro in baseball, but maybe you'll be pro and I can live vicariously through you. And we try to raise our children with some false expectation. And that's not, what, that's not what God calls us to do. You, parenting is a sacred task, isn't it? That we, we have been entrusted with our children to raise them, not in our image, but in the image of our Creator. We are called to be disciples that make disciples. And that's really easy with our kids because they can't go anywhere. They live with us. We're with them most of the time. And we can help raise them to be like Jesus. You think about, where do, I, where do I have opportunities to make disciples? Well, in your home, right there. So you don't have to force them into some mold. And, and today, even kids, kids are really bad about manipulating their parents based on what they see, what their, what their friends have, and what their, what their friends are allowed to do. And, and well, I, I want to go to that party. My friend's going to that party. I want those Jordans because my friend's got those Jordans. And now there's all these unrealistic expectations on the parent well, why won't you let me do these things? And they try to manipulate and make you feel bad and make you feel guilty. Or you're, not a, you're not a good dad anyway. You're not a good mom. You're not there for me. You hate me. Like, there's this, do you know what I'm saying? Has anybody ever been in that situation? Maybe you were that kid to your parent, huh? Maybe that's more of how it is. But Paul is saying here, kids, obey your parents in everything because it pleases the Lord. And that same word that he used when he talked about wives submitting... This is the more, this is the stronger word in Greek, which means you don't have a choice. He wrote in here, wives submit. It's like, hey, this, this is voluntary. But when he uses it in, in, in this passage, he's, he says, of obeying, he says, hey, obey. There's not, a, there's not a, 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 another choice here. You need to obey your parents. And I know maybe it's difficult for kids who, who are, are in love with Jesus and their parents are not. There's that question of how do I love my, how do I obey my parents even though they don't love Jesus? You have to trust Jesus in that. You have to submit, God, you know my heart. I'm not going to do anything contrary to what your word says, but I'm still going to honor and love my parents anyway. I'm going to submit, I'm going to love, I'm going to obey them. And this is what Paul says. He even evaluates the value of children in our community because kids for a long time weren't even valued. They, you know, they didn't really have an opinion until they got older, but Paul is saying they're a part of our community. Love them. Don't, don't provoke them to a place where they're going to walk away from Christ and walk away from the church because you're too strict and you're too, you're too controlling as well. That's why he writes that. Kids, obey your parents, but parents, be careful that the way you're raising your children is not going to push them away from Jesus because your whole purpose is to draw your kids' hearts to Jesus. So be wise about that. Because all of us have value and are seen as equal in the eyes of Christ. So I have a couple questions. How are you loving your spouse or your significant other? How are you loving your kids? How do you talk about your spouse when they're not around? How do you talk about your kids when they're not around? 
What words are you speaking over their lives? How, how are you showing respect and love for one another? As kids, how are you honoring and obeying your parents? Parents, how are you loving and encouraging your kids? Because we've all been made new in Christ, we need to demonstrate that new nature. And it should be evident first in our homes. Amen? It should first show itself by the way we love each other. It doesn't mean you're going to get it right all the time. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. And in fact, if, if kids, you're in a, in a home and your parents aren't saved, they might throw it in your face when you, when you act up and you're not doing the right thing. Parents, if you're saved and your kids are not, they might throw that in your face. Hey, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. I thought you were supposed to treat me a certain way. You're not going to get it perfect all the time. But always be quick to ask for forgiveness. Admit when you're wrong. Because that demonstrates the heart of Jesus too, doesn't it? Rather than be taking up a fence, ready to fight. What'd you say about me? You know? <laughs> that doesn't work. Be quick. Because you're not going to get it right all the time. So be quick to forgive, to admit when you're wrong. And hopefully there's no throwing blows at the family barbecue. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the call is to live in unity and in harmony with one another. Filling the will of God in our lives, starting at home. So as a way of closing this morning, I want us to pray together as a family. Can we do that? If you have family here with you this morning, I'm going to just invite you to come, bring your whole family down to the front. I want us to pray together. I want us to ask for forgiveness of each other, of areas that we've missed it. If you don't have family here with you, then I would encourage you, when you leave here, make some phone calls. Call some family and say, hey, I didn't do this right. I messed up in this area. But I want to I demonstrate the love of Jesus, how Jesus has changed me. I want to I demonstrate that love to you. So would you come forward with your, your spouse? If you have kids in the room, bring them down. And let's just spend some time in prayer together.